right, well, good morning, everybody. Can I get a good morning back from you today? Yeah, let's go. It's a good, good day to be in church. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Tyler. I get to be the pastor of this church that we call Anastasis. If this is your first time with us today, I just want to say welcome. Man, I'm so, so grateful that you're here. Thank you, thank you, thank you for taking time out of your weekend to spend it here with us. I don't think there's a better place for us to be on a Sunday morning than here in church worshiping God together. The truth is we have so much to be grateful for and thankful for. I think we just pause and take some time to look around. We'll see it. It's amazing. I think you find what you're looking for. And God says, if you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I think if we start looking with gratitude, I've talked about that just a little bit ago, we'll find that. We'll find who God is through the gratitude for what he's been doing in and through our lives. And if I'm being honest, uh, I'm having to find gratitude quickly this week uh, in a situation with my son. He's got the nickname in our home presently as the Ornament Bandit. Like the Ornament Bandit. Like if you've seen Home Alone, there's the what bandit? It's like he's the Ornament Bandit. What do I mean by that? You're like, what is he stealing ornaments from stores? Like not stores, but off of our tree. They're glass. We're changing that. Don't worry. And he walks into our kitchen. He did this last year. We thought that it was going to go. It's not. It's, it's still here. He goes into our kitchen. It's got tile in the kitchen. And he goes, bust, right? Like all over the floor. We're like, no, no, no. Like, not okay. Buddy, stop. What are you doing? And he's like, woohoo, you know? And he's like, keeps moving. He's like, that is awesome. It's like, no, it's not awesome, bud. Like, it's actually kind of the worst, you know? Like, it's not awesome. But he does it. And then we thought we moved them all. And apparently our eyes just aren't good enough at figuring out which ones are glass and which ones are plastic. Because I saw him again the other day and he had his arm back. Like he was ready. He was going to fire that into our kitchen floor. And I stopped him. And I thought for a moment, I'm like, okay, Tyler, how are you grateful for this moment? You know, like how can you do it in this moment? I think there's a point there where I am grateful. I will never, ever, ever here in a couple of years be able to get back the kid that finds such wonder and seeing an ornament explode, right? I will never be able to get back the kid that in the simplest of moments just finds such joy. And then I have to remind myself, like, who wouldn't think that was awesome at that age, right? Like, who wouldn't see a Christmas ornament go into a thousand pieces on the floor and go, that was pretty cool. Like, I think every single one of us would. But today, I want to tell you, no matter where you find yourself, I think if we put on our glasses looking for some gratitude, I think we'll find it. And I think if we look at every situation as a gift, as an opportunity for God to mold us and to craft us, we'll find that. And we'll find joy in the moments that bring us sorrow naturally. We'll be able to look to God and have him redeem our sorrow for joy. And today we're going to continue to talk about gifts with our series, The Gift. But before we do that, let's go ahead and let's pray together. Father, I thank you for who you are. God, you're just so good. Um, You're so faithful. Lord, there's no one like you. Uh, God, I just pray in these moments that we share, Lord, that uh, we would just have just a sense and awareness of your presence. Father, we know you're with us. Your word says that we're two or more gathered, that you're here. And so, Lord, we come in agreement, Lord, seeking your heart and your face, God, your wisdom. And God, we just want to worship you today. Lord, I pray that our gaze would be upon you. No matter what's going on in our world, no matter what's going on in our lives, God, we'd lay it all at your feet and that all of our focus would be on you. Lord, I pray over the words that I'm about to speak. Father, I pray that they would be the ones that you want spoken. Lord, omit the words from my vocabulary today that you don't want spoken. Lord, I pray that only your message would be heard in Jesus' name. And everybody said, 
Amen. But I do love this time of year. As much as I don't love it when my son throws the bulb in the air, I do, I do really love this time of year. I think it's absolutely awesome. There's so much going on. Um, when I tell somebody, I go, they're like, how you doing? I'm like, we're just kind of busy. And they're like, yeah, us too. I'm like, yeah, I know. Yeah, that's right. There's, there's, there's no need to like assume that any of us aren't busy right now, right? Even if you don't want to be busy, you find yourself busy. And I was thinking about that as I was standing in the register this week, listening to a conversation going on behind me. And it reminded me of a conversation I had with somebody too. They're like, I got so many gifts to buy. I've got so many gifts to give. And they're like, and then I got these gifts that I'm going to get and some of them I'm going to love. And then there's going to be these others that I don't want. And so if I get these ones I don't want and I don't know where they came from, then I'm just going to re-gift them. And I'm like, that is, you know, there's never been a greater sense of stewardship than the re-gift, right? Like for so many of us, it's like, we're late. We're running out of money. We don't know what to do. Well, I got this thing that I got, just don't really want. Maybe my Aunt Judy would love it. You know, who knows? We'll give it to her and we'll just let her figure out what to do with it next. Um, but it's one of these situations where in desperate times, desperate measures happen. And then in other times, we get these gifts and we don't know what to do with them. And we don't know if they're even valuable, if they're even good. And I imagine that if we were to take ourselves and not have the context and think through what Jesus was given uh, uh, to about two years after his birth by the wise men, we'd probably wonder why on earth did they bring him gold? frankincense and myrrh. Like what on earth is that about? And if they come from these powerful wise men, they must mean something. They must be worth value. They must have importance. But on its face, I think for some of us, we could look at it and go, what on earth is this for, right? Like why on earth do I need another back scratcher? Like I don't know what's going on. In the context of what we're going to read in scripture today, though, we're going to find out again just this intrinsic value that exists and what was brought to Jesus. And if you're with us last week, we looked at the gift of frankincense, that frankincense was a very expensive and practical gift. It helped treat sicknesses and wounds, but it also had a spiritual principle behind it. Priests would burn the incense and the fragrant offering to God, symbolizing prayer rising to God as the smoke would rise up from the burning of the fragrant offering. And the reality is the high priest had a couple of duties in that day and age. The first duty was priests were supposed to make sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. That was one of their, their objectives. And then the other one was that they were supposed to pray prayers on behalf of the people to God. But if you weren't with us, and you may not realize this, in Scripture, one of the offices that Jesus holds, one of the duties that he performs is Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is our high priest, and Jesus didn't just perform a sacrifice. Jesus was the sacrifice. Time and time and time again, every single year on the Day of Atonement, the priest would have to make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. That sacrifice would be good for one year. For one year, it was a temporary sacrifice. But when Jesus died on the cross, it was good once and for all. For all of eternity, there was no more need for another sacrifice. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. So he performs the duty as our high priest, as Paul calls him, by, do, by being the sacrifice. Not just performing it, but by being it. And then also, you're like, okay, but what about praying prayers on behalf of of the people. Well, I love what it says in Romans 8, because Jesus is still performing this duty. As it says in Romans 8, 34, who is to condemn Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus is the one who died, but more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. He's interceding for us. 
He's praying for us. He knows what's going on. He has an understanding of the faith that you need, and he does not want to leave you alone. The Holy Spirit came to live within you, and you have an advocate in the Holy Spirit living within you, and you have Jesus praying for you, interceding for you. So our high priest is our Savior, and our Savior is praying for us. How cool is that? I absolutely love it. Jesus is praying for us. He knows our concerns. He sympathizes with us. We do not have an absent Savior. And so we're going to continue today to look at the moment in Jesus's life where he receives these gifts. Um, We're going to do so by looking again at Matthew chapter 2. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, if you've got one. If not, the scriptures will be on the screen behind me. We're going to look at Matthew 2, 1 through 13 to start today. And it says in uh, verse 1, chapter 2, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is absolutely amazing. These wise men coming, and we talked about this, again, they're looking for a king. They expect to find the king where? The future king has to be in a palace, right? That's, that's the obvious answer in their minds. Here comes the king, okay, must have been born to Herod. We gotta show up on Herod's front doorstep. There's gotta be a future king in there. There's gotta be a baby in there that's gonna be king. Let's go and pay our respects and worship this future king. But no son has been born to Herod. So he takes this announcement as a new ki- of a new king and is troubled because he takes it as a threat and so much troubled that we'll talk about it here in just a moment that his plan is I've got to eliminate this child. I've got to kill this child. I've got to make sure this child never gets the opportunity to become king because I need to preserve my throne. And this fits Herod's character to a T. I told you last week, I'll tell you again, as a ruler, Herod was talented and vigorous, but he was also violent and paranoid. And he was paranoid enough that he killed several of his sons when he perceived them to be threats, including his favorite wife when he perceived her to be a threat. His desire then to kill Jesus is just consistent with his pattern of eliminating all threats to him. And so Herod is nervous. He's paranoid. He asks the religious leaders, his religious leaders, hey, where's the Christ supposed to be born? And they tell him in Bethlehem. But it says in verse seven that then he summoned the wise men secretly. He does this because he doesn't trust anyone. He's like, I know that those religious leaders said that, but let me talk to these ones. And so he summons the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he repeatedly asked them, that word means more interrogate, and I can only imagine how fun that room had to be. I don't know if you ever do that. You look at situations, you go, that doesn't look too fun. I can't imagine that conversation is a lot of fun. I can't imagine that situation is a lot of fun. I don't believe being like locked in a room with Herod, the guy who's killed some of his sons and his wife, over being nervous that they were a threat. I can't imagine being interrogated by that guy is a real relaxing situation. But they give him the information that his his 
leaders did, and they told him the time that the star appeared. And so when he feels like, you know what, I actually think they're telling me the truth, he says to them in verse 8, go to Bethlehem, basically. Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me words so that I too may come and worship him. And I, I can only imagine that as he says that, it's like, oh, it'd make my skin crawl, right? Because we know what he's actually planning. We know what he's actually scheming, what he's actually devising. Herod's only five or six miles away from Bethlehem at this point. We need to understand that context. He's not far, and yet he says, oh, that's good. It's in Bethlehem. You guys go and then tell me, and then I will come and worship him. He doesn't stay back because he's got so much to do that's really important for, like, governing his kingdom. He stays back so that he can begin to scheme his plan. And it says in verse 9 that after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I love that. They worshiped, they celebrated, they couldn't believe it. And imagine the emotion that had to be in their hearts and their minds. These guys knew scripture too. They were Gentiles, but they knew the scriptures. That's why they were able to give Herod these answers. And they have to be going, this is unbelievable. Like we get to be a part of witnessing this child who's going to be the king of the Jews. How blessed are we? They see the star come and they go, we can't believe we get to be a part of this. Look, there it is. That's where we have to go. And it says in verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And I'll say it again. We've always imagined that this thing took place on the night that Jesus was born. Our nativity sets tell us so. Our church plays tell us so. All the pictures in Hobby Lobby tell us so, right? Like everywhere it tells us that the wise men were there at the birth of Jesus when he's laying in the manger. And the reality is no. And so this gave me a little more perspective, just realizing this and understanding this and thinking about it even again this week. They're not bowing down to a baby in a manger who's just been born this miraculous birth. They're kneeling to an 18-month-old or a two-year-old. Imagine that. I've got a two-year-old. Grown men bowing down to the two-year-old. It's unbelievable. And Jesus is nothing like my two-year-old who throws, you know, ornaments on the ground and breaks them. But I, I remember growing up and seeing people with children that were small, and they'd make a lot of noise because they just do. And I remember not realizing that and being like, man, they got to get that kid to be quiet. You know, like, they really need to, they need to settle them down. I remember being on a, on a plane and I wanted to sleep and the kid behind me just would not knock it off. And like, I remember like, no, make him be quiet. And then I got a two-year-old and I began to negotiate with him. And then in the back of my mind, I'm hearing George W. Bush say, we don't negotiate with terrorists, right? Like, and I'm like, I know, but you don't know where I'm at right now. This is what I have to do. And so I, I say all that because imagine this though. Again, Jesus is nothing like my two-year-old. He's the sinless son of God. But they're bowing down to this two-year-old. This picture had to be amazing. And then they're not just bowing down to him, but they're in awe of the moment. They're in awe of what's happening. They're in awe of where they are. And it's incredible. And why would they do that? Because they knew his divine identity as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let that sink in for a second. They bowed down to this 18-month-old, this toddler, this two-year-old, because he was the king of kings and the lord of lords. 
And in that moment, his identity had this power and this presence. And in that moment, they recognized this, the magnitude of what is at hand, that grown men would bow down to a child. And it says that then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of, frankincense, of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And these were three valuable, three important, three significant gifts. Myrrh representing the suffering servant, the Lamb of God. It was used for embalming in Roman culture. Frankincense, we already talked about that, but a very expensive gift used to treat wounds and sicknesses. It was burned by the priests, symbolizing the prayer as the smoke rises to heaven. And in my perspective, probably also the answer to the cries of God's people asking for their savior to come and gold then representing the kingship of Jesus. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. We're gonna focus in on the representation that gold offers to the kingship of Jesus. And Jesus being the king of kings and the Lord of lords and his kingship is challenged time and time again in his life. By Herod, obviously here in the beginning as we'll continue to talk, and then even more so, through his entire life, as the Pharisees just can't imagine that this radical rabbi would have importance. They wouldn't want anything to do with this guy gaining steam and talking of this gospel that's come to save their sins and all of this stuff. They wanted nothing to do with relinquishing power to the one true king. And so as we continue today, we're going to hone in on that representation of the gift of gold that it offers as Jesus the king. And Jesus is a king like no other. And so in verse 12, the wise men have now visited Jesus. And it says, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. I love this picture. I love what happens here for one main reason. Obedience. Obedience takes place. Our job as followers of Jesus is not to know everything. Our job as followers of Jesus is to be obedient to the one who does. We can spend so much time trying to gain information, memorize stats, but if our hearts aren't conformed to the King of Kings, if our hearts aren't conformed to our Father in heaven, then we're gonna be missing the point. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I grew up in church and I can remember meeting people who could like, like recite scripture. They'd memorize so much of it but then like their life just didn't really exude that much grace, right? Their life didn't show that much love and that much care. And so they knew all this stuff. They had all this detailed attention about who God is like based on knowledge, but they had no like real experience of God in their heart, having their hearts crafted and transformed into who he is. It's not enough just to know the things about God, but we were created to intimately know God. When we spend time getting to know him, I believe that our hearts are, they're conformed, they're transformed to look more like him. And then obedience becomes our response, our way of living. And so I love the way that obedience is modeled here. The wise men have a dream. 
from God and they respond accordingly. Joseph has a dream and he responds accordingly. And I love this moment for Joseph too, because I feel like Joseph is somebody in the Christmas narrative we just don't talk about a lot, but imagine being him. You're engaged to Mary. She has this visit from an angel and she says, I'm going to be birthing God's son. And so she goes to him and says, hey, I'm pregnant. And he's like, we aren't married yet. How on earth has this happened? And, and she's like, it's, it's God's child. And he's like, I don't believe that. Like, you know, like, I, there's no way. There's no way. The angel hadn't visited him yet. He's like the rest of us. It says in scripture that his goal was he was going to basically resign to like divorce her quietly because in that day and age, an engagement was as good as actually being married. All that was missing was just the ceremony at that point. So his thing was like, I'll just divorce her quietly. I won't bring a bunch of shame to her, but there is no way I'm getting in the middle of this mess. There's a lot of drama involved where the girl just showed up and told me that God gave her a baby. Like, I don't want anything to do with this. But then an angel visits him in a dream and says to him, no, 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 take Mary as your wife. You can trust this. This is from God. So do this. And he's obedient. He takes a step of faith off of what he was told in a dream. And this had to be a hard step of faith for him to do. And now fast forward a couple of years later, he's still obedient. And I want to say it, and I'll say it probably nonstop, um, and you're probably tired of hearing it, but our job is obedience. God's job is outcome. We only do what the Father tells us to do. When God speaks something to us, we're obedient to it, no matter what it looks like. And in this life, God might ask you to do something that on paper looks crazy. God might lead you to do something that all of your friends, family, neighbors, and coworkers say, that's wild, that doesn't make sense. But if God has asked you to do it, I believe with all of my heart, he'll be faithful with you through every step of it. So our job is not to know every inch of the plan. Our job is not to figure out everything on our own, but our job is to hear the voice of God and to respond. To hear the voice of God and to respond. And that is what Joseph and the wise men are doing here. They're modeling this obedience perfectly. And it's important because it says in verse 16, then Herod, when he had saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. This is horrible. When I read this in scripture, I'm like, this is absolutely horrible. His decision is made out of a desire to preserve himself as king politically, as a ruler politically. And I said it last week, and I'll say it again. Um, his desire to kill Jesus, if indeed Jesus is the son of God, which we know him to be, this is a foolish plan. It's not going to be able to succeed. But because he's living from a sinful place, he's not operating with wisdom. Because he's operating from a sinful place, no matter how hard he works, this plan will not come to fruition. And so his sinful focus, although he's smart, although he's strategic, although he's successful, his sinful focus here makes him a fool. And wisdom and sin, I do not believe, can exist at the same time because wisdom comes from God. Our hearts are aligned with his. Wisdom comes from God. Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, the, the Lord, not 
my outcome, not my situation, not my finances, not what somebody might say about me, not what somebody might think about me. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if we don't have fear of the Lord, which clearly he's not possessing a holy, pure fear of the Lord, then wisdom will not come from that situation. But Herod is not looking for God. He's only looking to preserve himself. So no wonder he's making such evil and terrible decisions. And as a kid, I couldn't imagine Herod. I just, I, I had such disdain for him as a little five-year-old. I would, you know, like I, I, I've got so many stories of the corny things I used to do because I was a church kid who grew up and I just could not handle Herod. And I'm like yelling in the backyard, like, I, I, listen, I was an imaginative kid. And so I'm walking around I'm like, Herod, you're not going to stand. It's not going to go. It's not going to go, right? And, and I couldn't imagine it though, right? Like who on earth would want to look at a two-year-old and say, I got to get rid of that. And not just one two-year-old. To make sure I get the right one, I got to get rid of all of them in that area. It's, it's horrible, right? It's absolutely horrendous. And he does all of this because he misunderstands the meaning of the word king for that moment. He has his eyes on the present, not on eternity. He has his eyes set on himself and not on God. And so he hears king and he thinks, wait, I'm the king. No, 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 no. I'm the king. This child better not be coming from my throne. And so he orders the death of every male child. But this, like I said earlier, this won't be the last time Jesus' kingship will be misunderstood. In fact, it's a pretty common theme through his life and through his ministry. When the Israelite people hear the term king in scripture, they hear it like you and I probably would. Political leader, ruler. He's gonna do everything we want us to do. He's gonna overthrow the government. He's gonna give us everything. Our lives are gonna be so much easier because he's gonna be in charge. He's gonna live in a palace. He's gonna rule militarily. All of the earthly things, right? That's where his mind is. That's where the Israelites' minds are. In fact, in this day and age, I'm convinced that's where our minds would have been as well. Look at every political season, right? We're like, this guy. It's like, no, God. That's where our eyes need to be, on God. And so you can imagine their surprise when Jesus didn't come to rule politically, but he came to rule eternally and he came to be the king of their hearts. No one expected their king to be born the way he was born, in poverty, in a cave. He's got farm animals around, right? Livestock are there. They didn't expect their savior, their Messiah, their king to come from Nazareth. In fact, there's a quote from someone in scripture who said, nothing good comes from Nazareth. And then even the people in Nazareth are like, well, Jesus isn't special. He's just the carpenter's son. They didn't expect their king to come in that way. No one predicted that the son of God, that the king of glory would befriend sinners, that he'd hang out with tax collectors and prostitutes and people from the wrong side of the tracks, that he would touch lepers, the people that need to stay a far distance away. He would, he would touch them and heal them, and he would love those that religion rejected. And they never would have imagined that if he was going to assemble a crew and a team that he'd pick the guys he picked, these uneducated fishermen, these tax collectors, these rebellious troublemakers, to be his disciples and to be the ones that then carried forth the mission on the other side of his death 
and resurrection, they never would have expected him to forgive a woman caught in adultery. They were ready to have a rock party. They thought it was all good. Jesus, this is what we're allowed to do. We're allowed to stone her. What do you say? He says, hey, you without sin, throw the first stone. They all begin to walk away. He shows grace to the woman of the street. He, he spends time at the same time extending grace, challenging the Pharisees and the hypocrisy that they present, overturning tables for those who are misusing his temple for prophet. They would have never imagined that the king of the Jews would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Though it's in scripture, it says he's going to come this way. They ignore it because it doesn't fit their narrative. It doesn't fit their perspective. Let me ask you a question right now. What is your viewpoint, your perspective of what God should be or as to who he is? Are there moments in our life where we find ourselves disappointed because We've placed this expectation on God that is not godly. It's not who he is. Do we find ourselves in moments of desperation because we're reaching for something that's not of God? Do we find ourselves looking to fulfill a void that can only be filled by God by reaching for things that are not of him and then having the skewed viewpoint of who he is? I think we've got more in common with them than we want to believe because they never imagined that those who were cheering on Jesus, the outcast, the immoral, the rejected, those who were cheering on Jesus as he was riding in on the donkey would be the ones cheering, but no one would have expected that when they had a king that he would actually have to stand trial for crimes that he never committed, that this innocent king would be beaten, that he'd be bruised, that he'd be whipped, that he'd be stripped naked, then given the most humiliating of deaths, hanging on a cross like a slave. And then while he's hanging on that cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand what they're doing. And in that moment, he says, but into your hands, I commit my spirit. And the expected king that they had to come and rule and reign politically, he came to die. He came to die. This baby, born of a virgin, this two-year-old, these grown men bowed down to, came with one divine purpose, and that was to die. And when he died, the Bible says that the earth shook. The sky grew dark. The veil was torn. While they didn't understand everything that was going on in that moment, they would have never expected their king to die. And no one would have believed that, hey, this royalty, this king is going to actually have to be buried into a borrowed grave. It's going to belong to this other guy, but he's going to let him use it. But it's a good thing it was borrowed, right? Jesus didn't need it forever. He only needed it for a few days. So he rises from the dead. Three days later, the stone would be rolled away. The tomb would be empty. The king would be alive, sitting on a throne. Is there anybody in the room that is grateful for a savior who is not dead, but is alive? Who didn't come to rule the way that I want him to, but he has such a divine purpose, such a divine understanding such a pure heart to rule and to reign forever. He came to be our king, but not just an ordinary king, but the king of our hearts. 
And I tell you all of this because I think there's three responses to Jesus as King. We see him in scripture and I think they're here today. The first one is this, opposition. Herod opposed Jesus as King. He wanted the execution of all the boys in Bethlehem under two. And today, I don't think it looks like that exactly, but it could look like this, opposition. I don't need religion. I don't need anybody telling me what to do. I got my life figured out. Everyone else just stay away. I don't need anybody to tell me what to do. I'm good on my own. Then there's this other one that we see, it's dismissal. Remember the Jewish priests that were there that told Herod first where the king was gonna be born in Bethlehem. They dismissed Jesus as king too because again, they were only five or six miles away as well and they didn't go worship him either. It was these Gentile wise men that went to visit Jesus. And so they dismiss him as king. And for us today, it'd be like this. Yeah, I know that Christmas story is like a really good story. And I, you know, I just don't really want it to get in my way. I don't really want Jesus to get in my way. I don't really just, I don't really have an issue with Jesus, but things are going pretty good right now. I kind of just like, you know, Christmas being what I think it is, which is just gifts and grandma's house and meals. And I just, I just want to do that. And, and please don't let it affect my life too much. You know, like every now and then I think it's a good story and I like to think about it, but it's okay. Like I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. And then there's this third response we see that the wise men had, and I believe some of us have as well, and that is worship and obedience. The wise men bowed to Jesus as king. This was the highest form of worship to bring yourself low, the ultimate posture of surrender and submission and reverence to Jesus. And so I ask you today, what about you? What's your response? To oppose him, to dismiss him, bow and to worship him. What's your response? Where do you fall in there? I think if we're honest with ourselves, all of us fall somewhere in one of these categories. You see, with everything in me, I just really, really, really want you to know him. I also hate crying. I really want you to know him. Obedience is not always easy, but it is always worth it. It is always worth it. When I think about how good God is, my words will never, ever, ever be able to articulate it. But there have been so many times in my life walking through something that is so difficult, something that is, feels so insurmountable, yet there's this peace like no other. There's this hope like I can't articulate. Like I can feel rejected by people, but like not alone. It's so unbelievable. I can look at my failures and my sins and realize they're not my identity, but I've been cleaned up. I've been picked up. I've been put on my feet on solid rock. My God walks beside me every step of the way. And I fear this thing for so many of us that we walk through our life with just not rejection of God, but sometimes dismissal. Like I'm, I'm doing good right now. I'm doing good right now. And then, oh no, I'm not doing so hot. What's going on? What do I do? What do I do? And we find ourselves disoriented or we find ourselves not knowing what to do or where to go and not realizing that every step of the way our God wants to be with us. It's why Jesus 
came. And, and for us, so many of us, we think that our life is just all about proving who we are, like our credentials or our education or our title or our job or how much money is in the bank or how much money isn't in the bank or our highs have to be so important. And we got to do everything we can to minimize our lows, right? Don't let anybody know how low that was. They might go away from me or they might think poorly of me. And the reality is, I think all of that makes sense based on who the world is. I think, I think living like that, I can see how we get there. I'm not, I'm not hating on that thought process. I know how you get there. And it would all make sense if Jesus came to rule politically, to treat him like that. It would all make sense to engage our relationship with God like that if Jesus came just to rule politically. That was his only goal, was to be president or king of an area, a monarch. It would make sense. That's what it would take to get into good graces with them. Make sure you got the right credentials, the right education. You've done the right things. Minimize the negatives. But that's not who he is. Let me tell you about who Jesus is. He's not distant. He's not an uninvolved, angry judge. He's also not the big guy in the sky. Jesus is not your homeboy. Like he is none of those things. He's not your eight ounce or eight pounds, six ounce newborn baby Jesus. But he is a king like no other. He's the king of glory. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of ages. He's the king of kings. Jesus is the king who heals the sick, who opens the blind eyes, the deaf ears, who strengthens the weak, who delivers the captives. Jesus restores the broken. He's a shelter in time of trouble. He's the light when the world is dark. He's our prince of peace. He's our lamb of God. He's the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, the resurrection, and the life. At his name, darkness trembles. In his presence, demons flee. Though the devil hated him, he couldn't stop him. Death couldn't defeat him. It couldn't hold him. He's faithful. He's good. He's able to do more than we ever thought or imagined. He's merciful and kind, yet strong and mighty. He's everything that my words can say. And so, so much more. Jesus is king. And in my heart of hearts, the only thing I want for you today is to know him. Not just to believe in him, but to know him. That your life would be built on the firm foundation that we sang about earlier today. So that when the rain comes, when the wind blows, you're not overtaken. You're not knocked down. You don't find yourself disoriented and wondering what's going on. But every single day you would walk hand in hand with the God who loves you, with the God who's faithful, with the God who came for you. And there's nothing he can't handle. I repeat, nothing he can't handle. So what's your response today? Oppose him, dismiss him, or bow and worship him? My hope and my prayer is that as a church, we'd be a group of people whose lives are marked by surrender to Jesus. And when they look at us, they go, they've been with Jesus. There's no doubt they've been with Jesus. They know him. They're the most forgiving and generous, merciful and kind, committed and faithful people we've ever seen. And I believe that comes from a place of saying, I'm gonna make obedience my choice. I'm gonna lean in know the heart of my father. Obedience isn't always easy, but it is always worth it. So no matter where you are right now, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Not the rain, not the wind, not anything else. 
Get your eyes on Jesus. He'll never fail you. Let's pray together. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're here today and you would say, yeah, I need to, I want, I want my life to reflect bowing and worshiping Jesus. Every day, every moment, every step, obedience. If that's you today, would you just go ahead and slip up your hand? I want to pray for you. Yeah, hands all over the room. God, thank you. God, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for a group of people who are saying, I want my life to reflect worship of you, obedience to you, surrender to you. Father, I pray that that would shine like a light drawing so many to who you are. God, no one would look at our actions and say, look how great they are, but they would look at our actions and go, they have such a good God. Lord, I pray that everything we do would bring you honor and glory. Father, I pray for the strength for every person who lifted their hand today, God, for the strength for them to walk in obedience to you, God. I pray for their ears and their hearts and their minds to be opened to your desires, to your thoughts, to your dreams, for what you have for them, God, for your plan for their life, for your voice for them every single day, God. I pray that we would walk in obedience, Lord, that we would not be afraid of what could happen around us, what could happen through the world to us, but Father, that we would just be so committed to you. Our lives would be marked by worship to you. And with every head bowed and every eye closed still, um, if you're here today and you would say, I do not have a relationship with Jesus, but I want one. I want to know the God who came to die for me. And I want him to be the king of my life, the Lord of my life. All that stuff you just talked about, yeah, I need that. And I want to know the heart of the God who cares for me. If that's you, I believe what scripture says, that if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. And so all across this room today, if there's anyone here that would say, I wanna give my life to Jesus, just simply slip up your hand on the count of three, meet me eye to eye, and I would love to pray with you. One, two, three, if you wanna give your life to Jesus today, I've got you right over here on my right side. Anybody else in the room wanna make a decision to follow Jesus today? church, we, uh, we pray this prayer together. No one prays this prayer alone. We pray it as a family. So I'd pray, I, my hope is that you'll pray this out loud with me. Repeat this after me. Say, Heavenly Father, I need you. I am a sinner. I need a Savior. Lord, I ask for your forgiveness. I need your grace. Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. You died for me so I could live for you. Send your Holy Spirit to live inside me, to change me, to make me brand new. Jesus, I will follow you, serve you, and serve others. Thank you for forgiveness, and thank you for new life. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Come on, let's make some noise for that today. It's absolutely amazing. So, so good. Amazing, incredible. A Savior who would come and die so that we could have life and life eternal. A Savior who would come and die so that on our worst day, the day we're most ashamed of, the day we don't tell anything, anybody about, we could find redemption. We could find healing. We could find restoration in our souls and be raised to new life. That's God's son daughter. Hey, you made okay noise. Let's do it again. One, two, three. Make some noise. So, so good.
It's absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing.